This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Thank you. And first of all, I too want to acknowledge every single one of you for coming today. And thank you for that because, you know, just you being here literally sets you apart from everybody else in your class and puts you in the top 10% regardless of your grades. It puts you in the top 10% because you're doing something that most students don't do. So, you know, you're already in a huge step in a big direction in your lives. And I just want to acknowledge you for that. And actually, you know, there's nothing average about you because of the fact that you're doing this. It shows the initiative and the interest that you have and the fact that you want to be a successful leader, an insightful leader. And tonight, today's topic is insightful thinking, and it's actually servant leadership um, that Ralph asked me to speak about. And you know, I started preparing for this talk a year ago at this time, because I knew I was going to be giving it. And I did that because I believe in you that much, and I believe that you were that important and that valuable as a human being. And I just wanted to make sure that I delivered today. So I started working on this a year ago. And um, so we want to start with thinking about insightful thinking. And what is it? You know, what is it? We can say it's creative thinking. We can say it's outside of the box thinking. But it's also thinking that comes from within. It's beyond circumstances. It comes from the heart. It comes from your passion. That's where our real insights are born. And that comes from the questions that we ask ourselves. And not just any question, but the quality of the questions. I remember when I was a student here at Villanova, uh, and even at other places too, because I went to Baylor as well. And um, when I was a student, the kinds of questions I was asking myself, especially around test time, was, um, you know, how many points is this worth? And how long does my paper need to be? And what do I need to know to pass this test? You know, and I thought those were great questions, but really, when I look back on it, you know, none of those questions were really of a good quality. None of them ever, they rarely, if ever, got me a better grade. And on hindsight, and then when I take courses now every once in a great while, but when I do stuff like that, you know, now I realize that, that the better question for me to have been asking at the time, and that I want to share with you, is that when you're about to face that test, ask yourself, what concepts do I need to understand right now that I'm weak in? Look for the concepts. Look for what you're studying. Look for those weak areas and make them strong so that by the time you go into the test, you know more about what you're going to be saying or checking off or whatever it is, whatever kind of test it is. And when you have to write a paper, now I would ask myself, what can I write about that really excites me, that touches my passion, that gets me interested? Because if I'm interested and if I feel passionate about it, then I'm going to be more, more interested in going and sitting down and writing the paper and not procrastinating. I'm going to be learning about something that I'm interested in. It excites me to go write the paper now. So find something around the subject that, that really is going to speak to your heart and you will come out with a much, much better paper. So it's the quality of the questions that we ask ourselves. You see, 
Einstein, we're going to talk about Einstein, we're going to talk about um, uh, uh, Martin Luther King, we're going to talk about Thomas Edison. Thomas Edison was probably one of the most insightful thinkers on the planet, I think. You know, he ended up with 1,093 U.S. patents alone, holds the record still to this day for holding the most patents as an individual. He achieved some incredible things, and yet he never even went to school. He never got a degree. Einstein went to school and got a degree, but his professors hated him. They all thought he was a goof-off and all of these different crazy definitions that they had for him because his grades weren't that great. And when he graduated from school, he, he wanted to be a professor. He wanted to teach at a university somewhere, but he couldn't get hired anywhere because nobody wanted him. So he ended up being a patent clerk, you know, and he was that for many, many years. But then he started asking himself, he, he thought in pictures. He was always asking himself questions, especially regarding physics. And one day he was riding a bus, he was going home from, from work, and he was on this bus, and he always passes this big clock, all right, uh, tower clock. And as he was passing that particular day, he looked at that clock and he asked himself the question, what would it look like and what would it feel like if this bus was a particle and I was traveling at the speed of light. What would that clock look like as I'm looking back at it? What would everything in front of me look like and what would it feel like? And from riding the bus and answering that question in that moment, quantum physics was born. His, his theory of relativity was born. And it took him 15 years after that to prove it, you know, and to get it established. He had to go past, you know, he met a lot of resistance. He knew he was coming up against his scientific hero, which was Sir Isaac Newton, and none of his contemporaries uh, were interested until he was finally able to prove it with the help of some astronomers. But it took him 15 years to do that. But that's what persistence got him. That's what his insightful thinking got him. So if we look, and Einstein had a lot to th say about our days today. So I want to ask you a question. I want you to think about for a minute, actually. You know, this country has been in existence for 200 years, and yet for the past 200 years, we're still doing the same thing, the same ways that we were doing them 200 years ago. The problem is, 200 years ago, it worked, but today, it's no longer working. And so consequently, you know, we've got systems that are failing or struggling in government, in healthcare, education, in the judicial system, in politics, in our environment. There's all kinds of problems that we have going on, and the problem is, is we're still thinking inside the box. We're still thinking in the same way and approaching these problems the same way that we've always approached them, and we're making very little headway. You know, always for the government solutions, it's always about tax increases, then it's about tax decreases, then it's about bailouts. And it's, we circle around those three things constantly. And our budget keeps going down instead of up, you know, because nobody's thinking outside of the box. Nobody's coming up with new solutions to our economical problems. And the thing about it is, this is not just in America, this is global. It's a global problem in all countries. And we're at a precipice now, and we need some answers. And it's you guys, you guys, you're the hope. You guys are the ones that are going to do it. And it's doable. It's very doable if we start thinking outside the box, you know, instead of what we've been doing in the past 200 years. Einstein 
because he saw these problems, because he recognized this, he started warning people about this way back in the 50s that we needed to do something or we were going to have the kinds of struggles that we have today. And people wouldn't really listen to him. He said insanity is doing the same thing over and over again but expecting different results. He was trying to get people to start thinking back then so we could avoid the problems that we're in today. <laughs> okay. And so he also said, hmm. He said, the world we have created is a product of our thinking and it cannot be changed without changing our thinking. And that's what he was trying to inspire people to do. Change the thinking, change the way we're doing things. He said, we cannot solve a problem with the same level of thinking that created the problem. And that's what we've been doing, trying with the same level of thinking. We've got to become flexible. We've got to reinvent ourselves, reinvent the way we're doing things, start beginning to use self-sustainable technology instead of technology that just becomes a part of a landfill somewhere. And the same with our food and everything else. You see, Rabbi Herschel said, every moment, I think I have a slide on, yeah, every moment there's something sacred at stake every moment. That's on a global level and that's on a personal level with each the decisions we make each and every moment of our day. Every moment something sacred is at stake. And the thing about it is on a global level if America goes down economically like Greece did, the world goes down with us because we're one of the strongest <coughs> economies in the world and most of the nations are heavily invested in us. So on a global level, this is true, and on an individual level, and the things you decide each and every day, because a decision today determines the grade you're going to get tomorrow, determines the kind of degree you're going to get when you graduate, could determine the kind of job you get, because your degree is a powerful thing. It's going to open doors for you that otherwise wouldn't be open to you. you know, people teach here at this university. They can't teach here unless they have a degree. But you don't need a degree to be successful in life, and Einstein and Edison proved that because he never went to school. <laughs> you know, so there's it, everybody's life is unique and individual. The important thing is the calling on your heart, the desires of your heart, and what you want to do with your life. And if you haven't figured that out yet, now's the perfect time to start trying to figure that out. And we'll talk more about that in a few minutes. Now, as far as Martin Luther King is concerned, whom we're also going to take a look at, Martin Luther King was all about taking responsibility and leadership and standing up. Just imagine, what if Martin Luther King had waited for the government to fix segregation in the South? If he had waited, we'd probably still be, be segregated today, you know, because it, it came with a lot of push and a lot of pull and a lot of effort from a lot of people, not just Martin Luther King, but he spearheaded it all taking responsibility, stepping up and saying, I'm going to do something about it. I'm not going to wait for somebody else to do something. I'm not going to wait for the government. I'm going to do something leads to real freedom, individually in our own lives and also around us, in our community and even in the country. Einstein said humanity is going to require a, a substantially new way of thinking if it is to survive. And when he talked about that, he was talking about imagination. Imagination. He said, imagination is more important than knowledge. Knowledge is limited, but imagination, it circles the world. Imagination points to 
all that we might yet discover and create. Imagination is the highest form of research, he said. He said, logic will get you from A to Z, but imagination will get you anywhere and everywhere. Napoleon Hill, speaking about imagination, he said, imagination is the most marvelous, miraculous, inconceivable, powerful force that the world has ever seen. And let me tell you, what we're gonna look at today shows you that Edison, Einstein, and Martin Luther King proved that with all the things and the problems that they solved and the things that they achieved with their lives. Now with servant leadership though, which was Martin Luther King's focus, Martin Luther King once quoted Jesus and he said, he who is greatest among you will be your servant. And then he said, if we give greatness that definition, it means that everybody can be great because everybody can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and your verb agree to serve. You don't have to know about Plato and Aristotle to serve. You don't have to know Einstein's theory of relativity to serve. You only need a heart full of grace, so generated by love, and you can be that servant. And remember, most of the people that he was speaking to at the time weren't going to school. They didn't go to school, and when they did, it was segregated, and their education wasn't the quality of most of everybody else in the nation. So he was addressing that. There's a man, Albert Pike, he said, what we have done for ourselves alone dies with us, but what we have done for others in the world remains and is Im immortal. Now think about that when you think about Martin Luther King and Mahatma Gandhi, who was his idol. These are two men that changed countries, not just a few lives around them, but countries within the last 60, 75 years for Mahatma Gandhi. Very powerful leadership. What made them so successful? We're going to look at that a little bit further down the way. You see, we're all born to be great. We've all got greatness in us, but we've got to make the decision to be great. Without making that decision, our greatness is only potential. And so that's why I'm speaking you to, to you today, because I don't want it to be just potential anymore. I want it to turn out to powerful things that you create and you do with your lives every day with the decisions that you make and the questions you ask yourself. See, we're all born with gifts and talents and abilities. All they come naturally to us, certain things come naturally to us. And if we don't know what those, thing, those gifts and talents and abilities are, then your first mission is to figure that out. Which, and that is doable, you can do it. Oh, I did it, I did it late in life, but I did it. <laughs> you know, and you can do it too if you haven't already done it. But once you, or once you, either way, whether you are expressing your talents and gifts with your life or whether you are not expressing them, either way, your choices will change the world. Just by living and breathing, you're changing things on this planet. The question is, are you changing things by default or are you changing things by design? Which is the way Einstein and Edison and Martin Luther King did it. By design, by passion, by creative abilities. So when Martin Luther King was on this planet, that was back in the 60s, a lot of major changes were happening at that time, including the Apollo space program. Now, in the space program, 
at that point in time. There was Neil Armstrong when he walked on the moon. He said that's one small step for man and one giant leap for mankind. So all of these powerful changes were happening at that time. And at that time, there was just over 202 million people in the United States. That was the population of the United States at that time, just over 202 million. So right now I want to tell you a story. Now it's going to sound a little bizarre to you at first, all right? It's going to sound a little crazy, but stick with me because at the end of this story, it's going to make perfect sense to you. It's one of my favorite stories and I think it'll become one of your favorite stories too. But let's pretend for a moment that we take that whole 200 million people and we put them in one spot and you are numbered among those people. Okay, and you're going to run a race. You're going to not just any race, though. It's a marathon, 26.2 miles that you're going to run. And everybody wants to win in the worst way because the stakes are really high. And this is the bizarre part because the winner gets to live and everybody else dies. Okay, so that's the bizarre part. <laughs> but just stick with me for a minute. So here you are, you're amongst the 200 million, and you want to win this race, so you say to yourself, I better get out in front first so I can, and, and then try to hold the position. And as you're thinking that thought, the gun goes off. You weren't even ready, you weren't prepared, but the gun went off, and so you have to take off, and you start running as fast as you can go, and you're pushing past people, and you're trying to get out in front, and trying to get out in front, and finally, you break out in front, and you're first. You're out, and you're in the lead, and you're amazed that you got there, but you did get there. And so now you're saying to yourself, okay, now all I gotta do is just keep running as fast as I can and make sure nobody else catches up with me. Only thing is, everybody else behind you is running as fast as they can to catch up with you because they wanna live just like you wanna live. So you're running as fast as you can and you say to yourself, I'll be able to slow down as soon as they start slowing down. You get to mile five, nobody's slowed down. So you're running, you're running, running. You get to mile 10, nobody's slowed down. And you're thinking, come on, somebody, you guys got to start slowing down so I can slow down. I'm getting tired. I want to breathe, you know, but nobody's slowing down. You get to mile 15, you get to mile 20, you get to mile 23 and 24. And now everything hurts. Your knees hurt, your ankles hurt, your elbows hurt, your lungs hurt. It hurts to breathe. You can't get your breath. You're just exhausted. You want to slow down, but you can't because you got to maintain that position in front. And finally, Finally, you reach that point where you see the winner's tape. You're about 100 yards out, and you want to run faster, but you can't. You try, but your legs just won't go any faster. But you just keep running, and keep, you look back, and you see there's about 100 people behind you. But what all you 100 don't realize is that everybody else that was back there, the rest of the 200 million, they were running just as fast as they could, but their bodies just couldn't take it. And they all died all along the path. You know, so the only ones still living are just the hundred, and you're at the front. And you look back, and you're trying to go faster, but you can't, and you finally get to that tape, and you break the tape, and you win the race, and you go, I get to live! You know, and you're excited. And the thing about this race is, is that it's real. And not only is it real, but it already happened. You see, just over 200 million sperm went racing toward one single egg. It was an uphill battle all of the way. It was difficult. Most of the sperm die all along the path. Only about 100 get in the vicinity of that egg. Only 100. But one gets to the egg and penetrates to the center of that egg. And voila, nine months later, each and every one of you were born. You're the best of 200 million. You came into this world 
champions already. We all did. We all did. <laughs> but then what happened? Life hit us. And then we think, oh, I'm unworthy. You know, I'm not good enough. We, all of these limiting thoughts start to hit us that, that you know, that, that we can't do it, you know. We think, oh, I deserve to be happy, but for some reason I'm not. We see there's a difference between thinking you deserve to be happy and knowing that you are worthy of happiness just by the very fact that you were born. You know, you were born worthy of all of this and with a beautiful creative mind and an inner eyesight, an inner eyesight. So knowing this, and knowing that we all struggle, you know, the, about, about, I would say, 85% of the population of the world struggles with feelings of worthiness, about 85%. And so we're all looking for validation, all of us. You know, we want to be validated in the things that we think and do and the things that we say. Well, guess what? Effective leaders of change validate the people that are around them. So that's one thing that you can begin to realize right now. Validate yourself, validate those around you. <coughs> Maxwell Maltz, he said, we cannot outperform our own self-esteem. You see, a strong and effective leader of change, as strong effective leaders of change, we must have a healthy sense of dignity, a healthy sense of self-worth, and a firm sense of self-esteem. And if you can start to remember that you're the best of 200 million, best of 200 million, you know, hopefully you can start to realize just who you are and the kind of power that you walk around with just with your own precious creative mind and thoughts. The key is to live from your heart and not to settle. Don't settle for anything less than your best. Don't settle for anything less than the powerful desires of your heart that you want to create and the kind of person that you want to be and the kind of country that you want this to be and the kind of business that you want to go into, whatever your interests are. You know, don't settle. Go for your passions. Go for your heart. Go for that creative ability within you that helps you change everything around you just because you're here, just because you're doing something just because you're stepping up to the plate. Like I said, a lot of people struggle and they think, ah, oh, I'm not good enough or I'm not big enough or I'm not strong enough or whatever it is, you know. But just think about this quote from Anna Roderick. If you think you're too small to have an impact, try going to bed with a mosquito in your room. A little old mosquito can keep you awake all night long. If a mosquito can do that, just think about what you can do as a human being in a room with a bunch of people just like this if you were standing up here in my place. You see, two things will change your life. Either something new comes into your life or something new comes out of you. And that's the secret. Joe Vitale said, He's a self-help author and speaker and entrepreneur, etc., etc. He said, you want to become aware of your thoughts. You want to choose your thoughts carefully. And you want to have fun with this because you are the masterpiece of your own life. You have the choices here. So you want to step outside of your own comfort zone. The best way to build your self-esteem, the best way to feel stronger and build your own vitality is to challenge yourself. Step outside of your comfort zone. 
you know, when I first spoke at a group in front of you three years ago, whoo, was I out of my comfort zone. <laughs> now I'm more comfortable with it, but back then, and I created my first PowerPoint, this is my third. There's a problem with it, and you'll see it later, but because <laughs> I'm not the best in the world at it. But the thing is, is I feel I have a momentum going now because I stepped out of my comfort zone. And this has become a regular thing now. Ralph always wants me to close the, the Freshman Leadership Academy. So things happen. So by stepping out of your comfort zone according to your interests and the things you want to see happen, you can, every time you achieve something, your self-esteem rises. Your belief in yourself rises because you know, if I did that, I can do more. And you were born to do great things. Remember, you're the best of 200 million. <laughs> the key is the decision to act, to just do something, get up and act. You make a, 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 you make a decision and you, you go do something with it and you have that stick to itness to persevere at whatever it is you're trying to do. Now, let's talk about insightful thinking and creativity. I said we were going to look at Einstein and we're going to look at Thomas Edison. Einstein, remember, he was all about thinking in pictures and imagining and asking himself questions and then answering those questions through what he could imagine. Well, Edison did the same thing. He would start working on something. He would get a patent. He would start working on a design and he would come up against problems and then he would try to figure out what those problems were. He had 10,000 attempts to create the light bulb which he's holding in his hand. You know, and, but he, every time he failed, he saw it as just a step closer to the real solution. And he had written, you can see in, in uh, uh, the Smithsonian, if you go look at his diary, they have it turned to the page where he said, I will make the oil lamp obsolete. That was his goal. I will make the oil lamp obsolete. Think they were using uh, uh, oil lamps. He didn't say, I think, or I'll try, or maybe I will. Even before it was done, he said, I will make the oil lamp obsolete, and that's exactly what he did. That's exactly what he achieved. You see, a lot of times we come up with an idea that we want to do something. Maybe it's write a book or do whatever it is. We get this great idea to do something. And then the next 50 thoughts after that are 50 reasons why and how we cannot do it, why we shouldn't do it, why we shouldn't even try. And that's normal. It happens to all of us. But the difference that will set you apart from everybody else is to remember that we live in a world of opposites. For every up, there's a down. For every in, there's an out. For every right, there's a left, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. North Pole, South Pole, all of it. Well, think about this. That law of opposites applies to your own mind. So if you can sit there and you can think of 50 reasons why you can't do it or why it can't be done, then you are also capable of thinking of 50 reasons how and why you can do it. It's just a matter of changing your focus and getting your eyes on the cans and off of the cans. That's the only shift you need to make in your mind. And that's what all the successful people do. They start focusing on the things they can do. And they think their way through an obstacle or think their way around it. They don't let anything stop them. And they look for the 50 ways and the 50 reasons how they can. Well, that's what Thomas Edison would do. And we ran, when he would run into a problem, he would just lay down and think. He would get still and he would think. So these are called Edison's naps. He's not really napping, he's thinking. He's running through all the possibilities of the problem and all the possible solutions. 
before he gets up and tries something else. And he did it all the time. They went on lunch breaks. They're talking, reading the newspaper. He's laying down, thinking. <laughs> those are his friends. That's uh, uh, Ford and Edison and then Firestone on the right. They palled together all the time, ran ideas off of each other all the time, and, and a lot of creative things came out of their friendship and just helping one another. So how did they do it? Well, as far as Thomas Edison and even Salvador Dali, here's one of the best ways that he would think when he first started looking at a problem, and Salvador Dali too. Dolly took spoons and a plate, whereas Edison would take uh, steel balls and a steel pl platform. And they both would sit down in a chair. Dolly would hold his spoons. Edison would hold his balls. They would concentrate and focus momentarily on the issue at hand. Then they would shut their eyes and completely relax and just sit there. Not do anything, just relax and sit there with that problem that they looked at at the tip of their brain. And then they would relax so much so that they would fall asleep. And when they fall asleep, they, their hands would relax, uh, Dolly's spoons would drop, Edison's balls would fall, they would hit the plate or hit the pla platform. This loud racket would occur and jerk them awake. And at that moment that you wake up, you're in what's called the hypnagogic state. And it is the most purely inspired, creative, thought time of your life. And they would write, or he would begin to think of the painting or whatever it is, and they came up with all their creative ideas in that moment of just coming out of that slumber, going into that hypnagogic state, and getting extremely <coughs> creative. And they came up with all of their solutions that way. You can do the same thing. Now there's other things you can do too. If you're, you know, wanting to see a problem and you're trying to think of a solution or maybe you want to create a business or whatever it is, create yourself a book of ideas and spend, you know, once a month, take 15, 20 minutes and then just sit down, get still and think of ideas and every time you get an idea, write it down. And let me tell you, don't judge or criticize anything, just write, if, even if it sounds so insanely stupid, still write it down because let me tell you, Always, invariably, it ha I've t talked to a lot of millionaires, invariably, the stupidest idea that they thought was so stupid became their most lucrative businesses. So in the moment, you might think it's stu stupid, but then when you go back and you read your book of ideas later, you realize, that's genius. <laughs> so don't judge anything or, put, or leave anything out. If you, know, when, if you get the idea, write it down. Put it in paper so it doesn't get lost, so you don't forget it, so you can come back to it at some point. <laughs> so, in order to change things in your lives, you have to realize that your attitude is made up of three things. Your thoughts, and your feelings, and your actions. If you want something to change in your life, all you got to do is make a little tweak to one of those three things. And it can change where you're headed. And I want to give you a perfect example in the physical world about that. Well, oh, I forgot a quote. Emerson, or Emerson said, what lies behind us and what lies before us are tiny matters compared to what lies within us. So that's your ideas. That's that, that's that ideas book. That's that passion that's driving you, that's, that's even driving you to get your degree so you can go out and achieve things with that degree. Tiny matters compared to what lies within us. 
And what lies within us is also our thoughts and our feelings and our actions, not just our gifts and our abilities and our talents. Now, in an aircraft, there's what's called an attitude indicator. I used to want to fly. I took flying lessons did all this stuff. But anyway, that's why I know this. <laughs> Every aircraft has to have an ad a working attitude indicator. If that guy's not working, you don't get to get off the ground. FCC will ground you. All right? And what the attitude indicator does is it tells the pilot the relationship of the aircraft to ground. It tells you when you're flying straight and level. It tells you if you're flying nose up to ground, nose down to ground, if you're banking off to the right, or if you're banking off to the left. That can be some pretty critical information, especially if you're flying by what's called visual flight rules instead of instrument <coughs> flight rules. Because if you're flying visual flight rules, you've got to make sure <laughs> that you know you're straight and level. When you're turning, you've got to make sure you know you want to be turning. You don't want to be turning accidentally. Because what can happen is, let's say you're going to fly from here, Philadelphia, to Scottsdale, Arizona. Depending on the kind of plane you're in and your headwinds and your tailwinds and stuff like that, you know, you could get there in about six hours. Uh, like I said, depending on the tailwinds, headwinds, or airplane. But if you're flying visual flight rules and you're, you're, you're not paying attention to your attitude indicator, if, that, if you start flying with just a slight bank to the left and you go for six hours, well, when you start looking at the ground to look for Scottsdale, Arizona, if you didn't notice that bank, well, then you're going to realize I'm not in Arizona. I'm in Victoria, British Columbia, Canada just because of just a slight little veer to the left because you weren't paying attention to your attitude indicator. What that means is that with just slight little changes in either the way you're thinking or the actions that you're taking in your life can make a huge difference in where you're going to end up in just three months, let alone six or a year, and can make a gigantic difference to where you end up five and ten years from now. So remember, every moment there is something sacred at stake you know and it's a precious thing to consider and realize because it can make a huge difference in where you end up and who you become so our attitudes are a composite of our thoughts our feelings and our actions now feelings feelings can be heavily influenced by our thoughts so you really can change things with just changing your feelings about something as well because you think start thinking about things differently it can change your whole perception so these are these are powerful concepts that we're looking at now you can also ask yourself you know am I looking at the world as a glass half full or half empty some of you I you know you answer that question in your head is it half full or is it half empty or are we doomed? <laughs> well, guess what? Who told you half empty or half full? We're all about thinking outside the box. Guess what? The glass is refillable. And not only is it refillable, but it's replaceable. You might want a bigger glass, a, a glass made out of a better material. Thinking outside the box. We don't care if it's half full or it's half empty. We can fill it up. You know, that's the kind of out-of-box thinking that I'm talking about here. I'm going to skip these, this little bit because um, uh, we're running out of time. We started a little later than I anticipated we were going to start. So I'm going to go right here. See, Nelson Mandela said, 
There is no passion to be found in playing small and settling for a life that is less than the one you are capable of living. And you guys are capable of great, great, great things. And it comes out of your insightful thinking and your decision to act on that creativity and act on that thinking. Henry David Thoreau said, if a person will advance confidently in the direction of their dream and endeavor to live the life that they have imagined, they will meet with success unexpected in common hours. And believe me, it does come. It just swoops up on you and surprises you. But you've got to march confidently forward in the direction of your dream. Leonardo da Vinci, he said, it had long since come to my attention that people of accomplishment rarely set back and let things happen to them. They went out and they happened to things. That's what we want to do. That's what I want to do. Hopefully that's what you want to do. You want to go out and you want to happen to things. That's what Martin Luther King wanted to do. That was his idea. See, Dennis Waitley said, there are two primary choices in life. We can accept conditions as they exist or we can accept the responsibility for changing them. And that's what Martin Luther King did. He, he wasn't going to wait. He wanted to get out there and take responsibility himself. All right, and start doing something about it. So where do we start? How do we start? Well, first of all, as far as being a leader is concerned, you know, you will be most effective as a leader when people follow you because of who you are and what you represent and nothing else. That comes living a strong life of integrity. That's the kind of life that, um, that Martin Luther King lived. See, you can make a living by what we get or we can make a life by what we give. And that's what Martin Luther King was all about in servant leadership the giving, the serving part of it. So what we want, why and why was he so effective as a leader? It's because of all these qualities as a leader that he had. And we want to examine those qualities. We're going to run through them real quick. I didn't originally plan to do this, but Ralph saw me speaking about it on Martin Luther King Day and asked me to talk to you guys about it. So I'm going to give you the qualities that I taught at that workshop. If you want to see that entire workshop, you know, come up to me afterwards. I'll give you my card. You can send me an email. I'll send you a link to it because it was videotaped. But everything I'm going to talk about comes from Martin Luther King's own words, not a, not a, a, a biography by, written by somebody else, but his words. You can get this book right here, <clears throat> The Essential Writings and Speeches of Martin Luther King. It's a testament of hope. And you get this, it's all his words. Every speech, he, well, not every speech, the most important speeches that he gave, every book he wrote, uh, sermons that he wrote, every interview that he gave is right here. And so these qualities are coming from his mouth, what I observed just by reading this book. A very powerful thing to read. I highly recommend you reading that book. So let's look at these qualities real quick. The first quality. Well, first of all, Martin Luther King said, our lives begin and end the day we become silent about things that matter. And he did not want to be silent about things that mattered. So he started speaking out. And the first quality that was, that I, these are not listed in any particular order. They're, they're just listed. <clears throat> King was simply willing to show up and step up. 
You know, he wanted to be a pastor. He wanted to teach at a seminary. He didn't want to be a civil rights leader, but he stepped up because he saw the need. <coughs> so you got to be willing to show up. You got to be willing to step up. He said, because things are the way they are, someone has to take a stand. And he wasn't going to wait for somebody else. He wanted to see the injustices exposed of the Jim Crow laws. He wanted to <clears throat> see the social ills that resulted from that to change. So he started to step up. And quality number two, you have to be willing to take responsibility for finding an answer. He didn't just step up. He looked for answers. He looked for ways. He looked for solutions. He looked for what they could do. One of the problems he had to deal with was hate. And his solution was, he said, hate the deed, but understand the person and want only good for that person. Because remember, people were throwing bottles at him. Think people were cursing him. People were, it was a horrible time. You know, it was a tough time. Not a horrible time, it was a tough time. Yeah, it was horrible at moments, but it was a revolutionary time. That's the word I'm looking for, revolutionary time. He had to exhibit great courage because of the fact that others wanted to hurt him. You know, they didn't want him out there. They were, you know, uh, throwing labels of degradation on him. They were turning dogs on him, batons, spitting on him, fire hoses. They arrested him, all of these things. It took a lot of courage to stand up against all of that. And he was willing to learn from his mistakes. One of the first marches that, that, that he uh, organized was in Albany, Georgia in 1962. And you know, all they were marching for was just uh, segregation in general. And the march turned into a big failure. It just didn't succeed because the topic was too general and the people got depressed, they were sad and, and, and everything. And he began to realize, no, we can't do this anymore. We have to march for specific things like segregate, you know, get rid of the segregation <coughs> in the schools and in the lunch line and on the buses. So specific things, the right to vote. So he learned from that mistake. And yet the fifth quality is staying focused. No matter what kind of whirlwind is going on around you, no matter what's happened, you want to stay focused and you want to stay committed and uh, to, to the goal, committed to the thing that you're trying to create and to bring about. His sixth quality was total dedication, totally dedicated to the breakdown of segregation. <coughs> he said he wanted to merit the trust that was invested in him. And he said, I must be a realist as well as an idealist with nonviolence as my weapon. And that's what he was staying totally dedicated to. We're gonna do this, but we're gonna do it nonviolently. The next quality is he was able to rally the people, you know, and to train them in nonviolence so that when they went out, they wouldn't strike back. They wouldn't strike out. They would just stand in marches of peace. So he rallied a lot of people around him to go on these marches. But he not only just rallied the people, he also, quality number eight, rallied the leaders, the leaders of the movement because there were times when he needed help and he would call out to the leaders of other organizations and they would come and help him. And there were times they needed help and he would go to them. They didn't always agree on everything, but they agreed on most things. And as a result, it was a very, very powerful movement because they had the numbers behind them of people and leaders. Quality number nine is that he was well educated. You know, he continued to read and study even after he got out of school. His education 
he knew it was the key and he knew it was his way out. So he got a BA in sociology at Morehouse College. He got a BA of divinity from Crozier Theological Seminary. And he got his PhD in systematic theology at Boston University. And then after he got out of school, he didn't stop there. Every day, he spent some time reading and studying, working on his own inner self as well, you know, and growing and learning. I heard one student one year, uh, after he graduated, he made this statement of, I'm never going to read another book again. He was so happy to be done. You know, and I thought, that is so sad. Because when you stop reading, you stop growing in great ways that you could be growing if you were reading books and challenging your mind. And, and, and books of self-help, whatever it is, you know, books in your chosen field of study, we should be growing and learning all the days of our lives. And if we're not, then we're going to be creating by our lives by design, I mean by default and not by design. And then what happens when we're creating by default, we start creating the same year over and over again. And pretty soon, you could reach 99 years and realize, wow, asking the question, did I live one year 99 times or did I live 99 years? I want to live 99 years. So, quality number 10, he was very creative, just like Einstein, just like Edison, very creative in the way that he carried himself and spoke, the, what he wrote, the books, the sermons, you know, extremely creative mind and very flexible because he would come up against circumstances and challenges and he'd have to adjust to them, remap how he was going to do things, think his way through it or around it, you know, so flexible and patient. <clears throat> he was coming up against poverty, deprivation, degradation that wasn't going to go over, go away overnight and, and segregation in schools. You know, they, they, they passed, they said that, the, that segregation in schools was unconstitutional in 1954 and they called in 1954 for the end of segregated schools. But it wasn't until and, but everybody knew, and, and Martin Luther King himself knew, it wasn't going to just happen overnight like that. You know, you'd have to gently move people in that direction. So it took from 1954 to 1965 before the schools, before they did away with segregated schools in Fort Smith, Ar Fort Smith Arkansas. I know that because that's where I grew up. And I was in the fifth grade when they did away with the segregated schools. All right, and, and put us all together in the same school. Fifth grade for me. <clears throat> so look, it took 11 years for Fort Smith, Arkansas to do it. <laughs> you know, so he have to be patient, you know, but at the same time, you gotta be determined. You're not gonna let, just give up and, 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 and let it slide by. You know, so he was determined. He was determined no matter what to have progress, and that's the important thing. Even if you're learning an instrument to play or you want to go to the gym and, and get in shape, you know, as long as you're progressing, yeah, we all want it today. We want to be in shape and lose 50 pounds today. We want to play that guitar or that <coughs> piano beautifully today and just move everybody to tears, but it doesn't happen that way. So as long as you're practicing, as long as you're doing something every day and you see progress, you can feel good about yourself knowing the day is going to come. I've got my eye on the prize. I'm going to be determined. I'm going to have patience and you will get there. Just continue moving forward just like he did. Fourth quality was a great conviction, and he believed in what he was doing. 
He knew that the rolling tide of world opinion would play a great part in what he was doing. So he took his great conviction to the streets and to the people. And then what happened was at one point, um, you know, as, as you may have seen some of the films and TV where they, they were marching down the street and they took fire hoses and they poured it on the people and then they all go rolling down the street. Well, imagine, I'm a fifth grader. I'm watching this happen on my TV. Or actually, I was a fourth grader when I saw this. Um, and I'm seeing this and I saw that water hit this black woman and I saw her hit the pavement and just roll down the street like she was a piece of dirt. And in my little mind, I'm trying to rationalize that because I'm thinking, that's got to hurt. You know, it's going to hurt that poor woman. Why are they doing I couldn't understand. Now think about this. At that same time, Paul McCartney's in Scotland. He's seeing the same thing because it's going around the world. And because Martin, that's what Martin Luther King wanted because he wanted the pressure of the world to come onto the United States. And, and that's exactly what happened. So here's Paul McCartney in Scotland in his hotel after a concert and he sees this and it touches him as well. Now in America, the slang for a girl was a chick, okay? And for a guy, it was a dude in the 60s, okay? In Britain, the slang for a girl was bird. So when he saw that happen, to him, he's seeing the blackbird go rolling down the street with that high-powered water hitting her. And he wrote the song, Blackbird, which came out on the White Album. Go back and listen to that song again now, knowing why he wrote it. It's a powerful and a beautiful song, Blackbird. The next quality is truth. He spoke from his heart. He stood for truth. He wanted to be genuine, and that's quality 16. He never asked a single person to do anything that he wasn't willing to do himself, and indeed did do himself. The 17th quality, again, high self-esteem. You know, he had every reason to not have high self-esteem because the world was saying to him that he was less than, said he was no good, said he had a bad heritage, said he had bad skin, you know, black skin, like it was bad, said that he was mentally weak, called him a second-class citizen, called him disadvantaged. But he said, no, I'm not going to believe that anymore because that's what a lot of people believed because that's what they were told for years and years and years and years, hundreds. You know, of years, over a hundred years they were told that. Well, he said, no more. He said, no, I have a rich heritage. I am mentally capable. I am strong. I am filled with God. I am filled with good. And black is beautiful. And so now everybody's saying in the 60s, black is beautiful. You know, and then black power and all these other things that came as a result of it. But that came from his self-esteem and saying, I'm not going to accept this anymore. And, and he had his struggles. He fought a lot with depression. As a teenager, he tried to kill himself twice. Thank God he didn't succeed. And then he had all that pressure, you know, on him with the threats on his life and on his family and when he would go out and march. And then, you know, when he was killed, he was 39 years old, but when they opened him up and looked at his heart in the autopsy, they said he had the heart of a 60-year-old man. That's how much stress was on this guy. But yet, he had quality, seven uh, quality number 18, dignity. Gandhi had said, be the change that you want to see the, in the world. Be the change you want to see. And so that's what he was doing. He was being the change. He stood in dignity. So I want to close by asking you guys some questions. And you might want to write these questions down, or at least some of them, and really think about these questions. Because they can change the trajectory of your life, just like that attitude indicator. 
These are things to think about. So the first question would be, what do you really want for your life? Start thinking about that now. What do you want for your life? What's your dream and what's your vision? If you don't have it yet, start thinking about it. Start thinking, paying attention to, attention to the passions of your heart and start to define what that really is that you really want out of your life. Second question. In what areas do you need to gain knowledge or expertise to see your vision come to fruition? So once you've got your vision, once you've got your dream, what do you need to do? What do you need to know? What expertise do you need to start learning now so you can start making that happen in the future? You see, you have infinite potential. We want to turn that potential into power, into freedom, into creativity, into the, the, the things that are going to rock your world and change things, change the way you live and change the way people around you live just by the things that you create, just like Steve Jobs did, just like Bill Gates did. They had a dream, they had a vision. Three, see leadership is caught as much as it is taught. It's caught and it's taught. So among the people that you know and the people that you know about, who models a life of leadership that you find attractive and inspiring? Learn from that person. Learn from him or her. Success leaves clues. Look for the people that are successful doing the things that you want to do and do the same things that they are doing and you will be just as successful. Success always leaves clues. Have a mentor in your life. Let that mentor be somebody from your major uh, study area. and, and, and get their, in, their insight and their expertise. You need to know, this is the next question, the fourth question, what are your core values? And do you integrate them into your life daily or do you merely affirm them intellectually? Do you even recognize what they are? Core values are, are things like, I want to be genuine. I want to be a person of integrity. I want to live free and with freedom. I don't want to be a slave to a 40-hour a, a day work week. I want uh, financial freedom, whatever it is. You know, I want to feel safe and secure. You know, these are core values. I want to be loved. That's actually a core value. So think about what the most three or four most powerful, biggest core values are to you. You know, and then start looking at your life. What are you doing to affirm them? Because really, they're influencing your life anyway. So the difference is, is that now you can start to consciously watch how they're influencing you instead of unconsciously. Because when we're unconscious and things happen, then we react instead of responding. And when we react, well, sometimes it's not so nice, you know, because we'll get angry and we'll just blow up, you know. We want to respond. And you can start to respond if you know what your core values are and understand why you got upset because it violated a core value. And then you can address it instead of just blowing up and not knowing why you blew up. <laughs> now, these last three questions are the most important. Because see, that, that, that quote that was just there, it was meant to be somewhere else. That was the boo-boo I was telling you about and I couldn't fix it because my computer here at work wouldn't let me do it. I'd have to do it at home and I was already here. So the next question is, what am I doing for others? Remember, we're servants leadership. We're about helping others. See, when you're helping others, then they want to help you achieve your goals too. So real leadership is always about 
helping others. So what am I doing for others? And then here, here comes the most important one of all. Ask this of yourself every single day, every single moment. What is my life the answer to? Remember, you're the best of 200 million. And your, your life is the answer to something. You came to this planet for a reason. You have these gifts. You have this vision, this ability. And there are things that you can do that your life is the answer to. From small little things in the moment to big things. So what is my life the answer to in this particular moment, at this particular time? How can I help this person? What is my life the answer to? You start answering that question, and wowee, there's no stopping you in what you can accomplish and how you can change everything around you, not just in your little vicinity, but even in the city, even in the state, and even in this country, like Martin Luther King did. Because he asked himself, not necessarily that particular question of what my life is the answer to, because he saw himself as an answer, and he lived it. And you can do the same. And the last question is, where do we go from here? Where do you go from here? You've got all this information now. And you got it for a reason. You came in here today for a reason. And like I said, you're at the top 10% of your class because you're doing what most other students won't do. That sets you apart. So, where do you go from here? What do you want to do? What do you want to achieve? What do you want to accomplish? You know that the best of 200 million. You know you've got a purpose. You know there's a reason for you to be here. Well, take this with you. Take this, this quote with you. Gerda, love this. Gerda says, at the moment of commitment, the entire universe conspires to assist you, conspires to assist you at the moment of commitment. I remember when I made my commitment to be a guitar teacher. I decided, and woo, I didn't, even, I didn't even lift a finger. Before I knew it, the students were coming to me. <laughs> you know, it, it amazed me. You know, all I did was make the decision, but the universe conspires. When the teacher is ready, the students come. <laughs> and that's exactly what happened. And I'll give you another example. Over the summer, I was uh, at a sustainability meeting here at Villanova, and they gave us a lunch. And at the lunch, there was somebody, uh, two people up in the line uh, that I knew. And he started talking to me. And he said, and, and uh, by the way, I had, had told somebody, I said, I would love to teach a guitar class here at Villanova. I would just love to do that. You know, and, and I made the commitment in my heart and I said it, you know, and so here I am, I'm in this line and I'm talking to him and he says, how are you, he was a friend so he knew, he says, how are your students doing over the summer? And I said, oh man, they're doing great, your guitar students, he said, oh man, they're doing great, we're having some, doing some great stuff this summer. And a woman, six people down in the line behind me, she leans over, she says, you teach guitar? And I said, yeah, I teach guitar. And she says, oh, will you teach a guitar class for us? Yeah. And she, in, the, in the honors program, they wanted a guitar class. And they had a guitar teacher, but they lost their guitar teacher. So guess what? This fall, I'm starting my first semester teaching guitar here at Villanova University in the honors program. That's what I mean. The universe conspires to assist you. Things, you bump into people. People come out of the woodwork. You're in a line somewhere. All kinds of things happen. It's the moment of that commitment from the heart. Goethe says, what you can do, or what you dream you can do, begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. And that is oh so true. 
So, live your magic. Live your dream. Change the world as effective, effective leaders of change. Just like Martin Luther King, just like Einstein, just like Edison, using your insightful thinking and your marvelous mind and your servant heart. Thank you.